Good afternoon and welcome to Unbreak Your Health, the podcast program about the world of hope and health known as complementary and alternative medicine. I'm Alan Smith in Plano, Texas, author of Unbreak Your Health, the complete guide to complementary and alternative therapies. And today our topic is cognitive behavior therapy, or CBT, and our guest is Dr. David D. Burns, adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry emeritus at the Stanford University School of Medicine, and he's also served as visiting scholar at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. Burns is a pioneer in the development of cognitive behavior therapy, a drug-free treatment for depression and anxiety, which has become the most widely used and extensively researched form of psychotherapy in the world. He's also the author of several books, including Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy, which has sold over 4 million copies, When Panic Attacks, The New Drug-Free Anxiety Therapy That Can Change Your Life, and his newest book, which just came out, Feeling Good Together, The Secret to Making Troubled Relationships Work. When Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy first came out in 1980, wasn't it rather radical to suggest that cognitive behavior therapy could be as effective as prescription drugs? Yes, it was. Uh, People were shocked by the idea. When I first heard about cognitive therapy, it was shocking to me. I was at the time a full-time psychopharmacologist and doing brain research at University of Pennsylvania Medical School. And I was treating large numbers of patients with uh, depression and anxiety disorders. And I knew the drugs I was handing out by the bushelful weren't helping many, many people, uh, that something more was needed. But when I heard about this new talking therapy, cognitive therapy, it sounded good on paper, but I was just convinced it couldn't help in reality. I thought it was like Norman Vincent Peale's power of positive thinking. And I initially tried it with a number of my difficult patients, suicidal patients, patients who had felt worthless and hopeless for years or decades. And I was just wanted to satisfy myself that it wouldn't work. And lo and behold, they began to turn the corner on their moods. And they said, you know, we want more of this. Uh, give us more of these techniques. And so it was really my patients that came to convert me to, uh, uh, you know, a radically different way of thinking about and treating emotional problems and relationship problems. Surveys today indicate that the American mental health professionals rate Feeling Good as the number one book on depression out of a list of a thousand self-help books. So that's pretty high praise from your peers today, isn't it? That was very, very exciting to me. It's been an amazing thing. When the, when the book first came out, uh, the publishers, uh, they kind of had a list of books that they were certain would fail. Feeling Good was on the list. They thought it was just, you know, another self-help book and they printed a few thousand copies and figure they'd they'd write it off, but I think it's been real helpful to people. The uh, NIMH has done research. Forrest Scogan uh, is a researcher at University of Alabama, and he's had grants from NIMH to study self-help books, and he asked the question, could a self-help book actually help anybody? Is it just a lot of BS or whatever? And he chose Feeling Good as the book he would study, and he did really innovative research there, taking large numbers of people coming to the University of Alabama for treatment for what are called major depressive episodes, and told them you're going to have to be on a waiting list for four weeks. But then he he said, what would happen if we gave them a copy of Feeling Good to Read while they're on the waiting list to, to see the psychiatrist? And they discovered 
in uh, a number of clever outcome studies that if they just gave a copy of Feeling Good to people who are struggling with depression, that two-thirds of them would recover on their own within four weeks without any drugs or any psychotherapy. And they've also done long-term follow-up studies on these patients, too, to see if they would relapse, and they seem not to. And so I think that that has been the real secret of the book's success, that it seems to be actually helpful to people who are suffering from depression. And I think that's why uh, therapists give it out, prescribe it so often for their patients, because for many people it does seem to have some real fast-acting and lasting antidepressant effects. So what exactly is cognitive behavior therapy and how does it work? Well, it's it's simple and very, it's extraordinarily sophisticated in, in reality, but it goes back to the teachings of uh, Epictetus, the Greek philosopher 2,000 years ago who said people are disturbed not by things but by the views they take of them. In other words, our thoughts create our emotions at every moment of the day, and it's not so much the events in your life that make you feel depressed or anxious or angry or not getting along with people, but it's the way you think about what's happening. And in addition, one of the radical ideas of cognitive therapy that Aaron Beck, a colleague and mentor for a while at University of Pennsylvania Medical School, pointed out that when people are depressed, not only are you giving yourself negative messages like, oh, I'm no good, I should be better than I am, I'll never get better, what's wrong with me, why did I screw up? You know, why, or why am I so anxious? Why am I so shy? You know, all these negative messages. But also that those negative messages not only create all of your moods, bad moods, but that when you're depressed or anxious or not getting along with someone, the odds are overwhelming that you're involved in a gigantic mental hoax, a con, that the thoughts that you're giving yourself do not reflect reality. They're distorted and illogical. And one of the things that I think made feeling good so popular was the list of 10 cognitive distortions that people can identify with so easily, like all or nothing thinking. You you see the world and your life in black and white categories. Shades of gray don't exist. So if you get divorced, you tell yourself, I'm unlovable. My marriage was a total failure. You know, I'll be alone forever. And that would also be an overgeneralization or fortune telling. You know, taking a negative event and seeing it as a never-ending pattern of defeat. Or should statements. You know, beating up on yourself with must, shoulds, and ought tos, or, or self-blame. And, of course, the remarkable Part of it all is that when you change the way you think, you can change the way you feel. And in my work now at Stanford Medical School, we're developing extremely high-speed forms of therapy, and we're seeing many people recover in just a handful of therapy sessions, two or three or four hours of therapy. People who have been depressed for years or decades have failed with all kinds of therapy, even shock therapy, suddenly saying, Wow, it's great to be alive. What a tremendous thing that this has been for me. It's not only a psychological change, but it's a total body change breaking out of depression and experiencing joy. It's a, you know, in a way, it's almost like a spiritual experience. It's like being reborn, born again. In fact, I think one of the greatest experiences a human being can have is to be horribly depressed and to feel worthless and then to suddenly discover the problem is not that you're worthless, but that you're beating up on yourself with all kinds of illogical messages that aren't really valid, aren't really true. And the moment you put the light of those thoughts, it's just the, it's the greatest feeling in the world to experience that joy, to get up in the morning and say, hey, it's great to be alive.
In your book, Feeling Good, you talk about these automatic thoughts and their cognitive distortion, and then you demonstrate rational responses. Is it really that easy to change our thinking and our feeling? No, it's not easy. And as I say, it's a simple thing in theory, but it's difficult in a practical setting because people who have been depressed or who are listening to the show right now who are depressed have been giving themselves these negative messages for years or decades. They seem as valid as the fact that there's skin on your hands and their parents have tried to talk them out of it. The therapist has tried to talk them out of it. Friends have tried to talk them out of it. Don't be so hard on yourself. You're not a worthless person. And those words just go in one ear and out the other and they feel even worse. And so we have had to create powerful, innovative ways to lead people to the discovery that what they're telling themselves is, is in a way rubbish. It's cruel, it's unfair, it's illogical. And we've developed 50 basic techniques that we're now using to help people who are struggling with depression or anxiety or interpersonal conflict. And we often have to try 5 or 10 or 15 of these techniques until we find the one that works. And so I tell therapists to fail as fast as you can because if you can fail five times a session, you can get a person recovered in three or four sessions if it's the 15th set technique that works for them. But therapists get hung up and patients get hung up because they keep doing the same thing over and over. It doesn't work and then the patient gives up and thinks they're hopeless. And we think that you have to have in your toolbox many different methods to help people, whether it's a acceptance paradox or the downward arrow or the double standard technique or the experimental technique or whatever method that you're using because the technique that works for Sam won't work for Sarah and, and the one that works for Sarah won't work for Dave. We all have our own unique path to enlightenment. In the latest version of your book, you mentioned the binocular trick, meaning magnifying or minimizing things. Can you tell us more about that process? Well, we're always, you know, blowing up our shortcomings and shrinking our strengths and saying, what's good about me, that doesn't count. And then you focus on all the negatives in your life and you blow them up to where they seem like Mount Everest. I remember I was on a, a TV show once in Cincinnati and they had a live audience and the host was really nice and we were talking about these distortions and then after the show he said hey hey could you give me a you know a, you know, a little free therapy here for 10 or 15 minutes I said oh sure I'd love to I well what's the issue he said well when you talked about that magnification and minimization it really rang home because he said after each show I'll get about three or four hundred fan letters he had a, like a daily talk show and he says they're almost all positive Every now and then, like once or twice a week, I'll get this real bitter, angry letter from someone who's, you know, criticizing me about this or that. He says, I'll just dwell on that one and magnify it like this is my whole life, and I'll feel uh, totally worthless. And it's like all those good letters don't count. And you can also call that metal filter because he's filtering out all the good stuff and dwelling on the negative and discounting the positives and, and make a case for yourself that I'm no good, I'm, I'm a loser because of that mistake I made or, or, the, or the way I screwed up. And I think we can all identify with that. And when you see someone else doing it, you can see clearly how irrational it is. But when you're doing it yourself, it just feels terribly painful and it, it just hurts and you just feel, you know, for all the world, this bad, awful thing about you has come out. You end up feeling worthless. In your original copy of Feeling Good back in 1980, I think the term was looking through the wrong end of the telescope, which I always thought was such a wonderfully descriptive phrase because, as you said, when you see somebody else doing it and you say, how can they irrationally focus on just this one little tiny episode and yet neglect the whole rest of the world around them? And yet you see it all the time. 
Oh, yeah, and when you procrastinate, you, you do the opposite, magnification. You, you think about all the things that you haven't done, and they become as big as Mount Everest. And then you get so overwhelmed, you say, oh, well, I'll put it off till tomorrow. Tomorrow will be a better day. It's just too hard to do all of that today. So whatever you're struggling with, uh, whether it's uh, anxiety or panic attacks or worthlessness or even marital problems, you can see these distortions go going on all the time in, in the messages people give themselves, and they create uh, tremendous unnecessary pain and, and suffering. Listeners, if you're enjoying this podcast, then you'll love my new book. The second edition of How to Unbreak Your Health is your map to the world of complementary and alternative therapies. It features a new user-friendly format and 339 new and updated listings in 150 different categories. And you can get it on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. You've said that building self-esteem is vital because most depressed people feel the four Ds, defeated, defective, deserted, and deprived. How can CBT help this process? Well, the neat thing about CBT and the techniques I describe in Feeling Good is they're very specific. It's not just kind of some kind of general pie-in-the-sky advice-giving type of thing. And real specific techniques you can learn and practice on your own, in fact, we found that the homework assignments that patients complete between sessions have a tremendous causal effect on the speed of recovery. And there's all kinds of wonderful tools like the daily mood log. You take a moment that you're upset and record all the negative feelings you had at that moment. You know, were you sad? Were you anxious? Were you feel ashamed, angry? And then you record your negative thoughts and write them down, one, two, three, four, five, six, on a piece of paper and how strongly you believe them. Then you identify the distortions in those thoughts, like the all-or-nothing thinking, the overgeneralization, and then you use a variety of techniques to put the lie to those thoughts. So that's the general framework. But as I say, for each person, the way you defeat your thoughts is going to be a little different. It's a mystery about why do we human beings do this to ourselves? Why do we give ourselves so much agony and and misery in our lives and panic and fear when it's all based on distortions and illusions and when we have such capacity for joy. Is that a psychological defect that we all have? Is it a spiritual issue? I don't know. It's a deep mystery. We don't know the cause of depression, but the good thing is we have fantastic new tools to help people turn it around and quickly and usually without having to resort to the chemicals that have been labeled antidepressant drugs. Now, your latest book, Feeling Good Together, is about cognitive interpersonal therapy, or CIT, and it's a radically different approach that's based on three simple but powerful ideas. Can you tell us what they are? Yes, yes, absolutely. I used to think that CBT would work for people with relationship problems. Well, it's fantastic for depression and anxiety, but it falls quite short. It doesn't have the same effectiveness if someone is angry and upset with someone else. And the first principle is that we cause the very problems in our relationships that we complain about so bitterly, that we're actually triggering those reactions in other people, but we don't realize that, so we end up blaming them and feeling like we're the victims. But in reality, we're creating our own interpersonal reality at every moment of every day. So if you have someone who's treating you shabbily or someone who's critical of you, someone who's a control freak, whatever it is, we're always looking at their shortcomings and say, why are they like that? 
what we can't see is that we're actually forcing them to be like that. And, of course, the other side of that is that if you're willing to examine your own role in the problem and focus your energy on changing yourself rather than blaming the other person, you can transform troubled relationships and turn an angry, hostile, mistrustful relationship into a loving one, and often quickly, sometimes in less than a minute. But there's a price to be paid, and that price to be paid will involve the death of your ego. The Buddhists talk about the great death. The Christians talk about death and resurrection. The Jews talk about personal responsibility. What I call cognitive interpersonal therapy is very much steeped in all of those spiritual religious traditions. It takes more than just a series of bag of tricks to turn around troubled relationships. It takes humility and willingness to do something that's going to feel very painful. The reward is fantastic but the price is steep. So why can't we all just get along? I mean, what does the latest research show for us? Well, traditionally, therapists have made claims about why we can't get along, and the research has shown that those claims are false. But most mental health professionals believe it's a lack of skill. Like we learned about reading and writing and arithmetic and all of that in grammar school, but we never learned about communication or listening skills or negotiation skills. And so... When we get into conflicts with people, whether it's husbands and wives or friends or even nations, we make demands rather than negotiating. We get defensive rather than listening. And the idea that mental health professionals have been promoting, wrongly I might say, is that therefore we just give people the skills they need and they'll gladly develop loving relationships because then they'll know how. But the research has shown that every form of marital therapy practiced in the world at this time does not work in the short term or the long term. These approaches sound good on paper, but they don't work in reality. And the reason for that is they're not taking into account the dark side of human nature. The fact is when we're not getting along with people, there's a side of us that doesn't want to get along with them. We want revenge. We want to blame them. We want to be right and have them be wrong, or we have hidden agendas going on. And it's those motivational factors that are the real cause of human suffering in the sense of relationship conflict and anger and violence. And you're not going to be able to resolve a relationship problem until you look at the motivational issues first. And that's one of the central themes of feeling good together. And it's a complete departure from most, if not all, other forms of interpersonal therapy or techniques that have been developed to help people with develop more loving relationships. Dr. Burns, I have to ask you the loaded question of the day. Are men or women more to blame for relationship problems? It's a 50-50 thing. There's people who have been claiming that, uh, you know, men and women are inherently different. Deborah Tannen uh, wrote a book with that theme. John Gray has written multiple books on that theme, that there's some kind of inherent differences between men and women and how we use language and the ideas that women use language to convey feelings and, and to develop intimacy and that men use language to solve problems. And so we get at odds with each other because of these inherent differences between men and women. But in reality, what we've seen is that those claim differences do not exist and have nothing to do with why people get, can't get along with each other. And, and men and women are both 100% responsible, both 100% to blame. And if you're willing to assume that responsibility, you can learn to transform virtually any troubled relationship quickly. But if you want to maintain this idea that it's someone else's fault, 
then our research has shown that the prognosis for improving that relationship is right around zero. I know of no techniques in the world that are powerful enough to help people who are blaming others for the problems in their lives or the problems in their relationships. Dr. Burns, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today about cognitive behavior therapy and cognitive interpersonal therapy. I appreciated so much the opportunity. Thanks a lot. It was really fun talking to you. Anyone wanting to learn more about Dr. Burns or CBT or CIT should check out his website at www.feelinggood.com. You've been listening to the podcast edition of Unbreak Your Health, discovering the world of hope and health known as complementary and alternative medicine. I'll be back next week with another edition, but to learn more about our guest today, please visit the podcast page at www.unbreakyourhealth.com. We'd love to hear from you about this program. Please send your questions and comments to info at unbreakyourhealth.com. This program is a joint production of Unbreak Your Health and Loving Healing Press. Thank you for listening. I'm Alan Smith, and I look forward to being with you again soon.